A week on what am I to do? My name's Alex First. This is First on Film and Entertainment. No football. I mean, I don't, I'm beside myself already. I know Spring Racing Carnival. I know we've got basketball, all these other things going on around us. NRL grand final on this evening. Sensational, all of that. Can Geelong go back to back, Greg King? Uh, Hello. Possibly. Yeah, Greg, possibly. Why is there yes. a gap in responding? Can they go back to back? Give me enthusiasm, sir. Possibly. That, uh, that, that's like uh, a whip. They, a they, they certainly just proved the um, saying too old, too slow, didn't they? They certainly did. The oldest team in AFL, VFL history to win a flag. Now, we, we talked about this briefly last week, but Robbie Williams, wow, wasn't he something? He, yeah, that was, he was, that was the best I mean, that was a highlight of the grand final there. He put on a fantastic show there. And it shows why the AFL want to have a nighttime grand final because that would have looked so much more spectacular at nighttime. A hundred percent agree. And I mean, they're, they're heading down that route. I presume that one of the issues is what about the children? How can they enjoy it? So if there's a twilight event, the only thing is that fireworks at twilight, that, that's still not as good as fireworks at night, is it? No, but... Uh, if, if the grand final goes to night time, can you imagine how many people will be totally off their face by then? Uh, Greg, you speak as somebody with experience in that area. No, but a lot of people go to the pub beforehand and get drunk and have lots of drinks. And, look, from what I saw at the grand final last Saturday, the cops arrested more people than Sydney kicked goals. Uh, very good. A nice line. Thank you. The the other thing that I, I don't know, did you hear this during the week, that People used to eat out later and it's being pulled back. People are going to restaurants and eating earlier than they used to before COVID. I, I find that quite interesting. Do you do you ever go out to eat at pubs and restaurants, Greg? I have occasionally, yeah. And and what time do you normally have dinner? Uh that depends on whether there's with films and everything, because you know, a lot of our previews start at six o'clock at night. So I don't really get much to eat there um at, at night time. Peter, Peter Crouse, on holidays. Peter Crouse, are you a, um, a, a goer of, of a sort of the culinary pursuits or not really? Not really, uh, although sometimes uh, I might have something to eat before a film screening. Yeah, I think I think we're not indicative, let's put it this way, because obviously film previews are usually at 6.30 at night, and uh, so we're probably not the right crowd to talk to about that. But I, I was fascinated to hear that people are eating earlier than they, they used to be. Now, talking about entertainment, we've seen a few pretty good films this week. So, And I've got to say, Greg, do you know anything about ghost stories? Are you familiar with that at the Athenaeum or not? No, I'm not. Okay, so this was... Uh, kind of eerie, is that the right uh, expression? It was meant to start uh, a week or so ago, then COVID shut it down, and I went to see Ghost Stories on Friday night. So I'll tell you a little bit about that later on in the program. But let's start things off with a couple of movies that I think we've we've all seen. One of them is, and by the way, we're also going to talk about Cyrano the latest MTC production, which I believe is the best production of this season. It's that darn good. Really, really impressive. The okay. season's only just started, Alex. No, it's almost finished. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, there's only there's only two more plays after this one, Greg. Okay. Mm. Okay, so <laughs> let me talk about a movie called See How They Run. Let's start with that. No shortage of humour. 
the clever creatives behind it have turned the world's longest running whodunit into a whole new whodunit. And it's interesting because it's based around the longest running play in world history, to the best of our knowledge anyway. And that's called The Mousetrap. Now, did you see The Mousetrap when it came to Melbourne last, Greg, or not? No, I saw it. I actually saw it in London. Ah, uh, did you? Okay. Did it impress you after all the sort of hype leading up to it? Uh, yeah, but I, I'm, I must admit, having been read a lot of Agatha Christie stuff, I picked the killer. Oh, did you really? Okay. Well, I saw it in Melbourne, and, and you know it's coming back here next year. Yeah, um, I heard that, yeah. Yeah, right. So the reason I'm talking about uh, The Mousetrap is that basically this is this is the basis for See How They Run. A successful producer called John Wolfe, played by Reese Shearsmith, has optioned the film rights to The Mousetrap from Petula Spencer, played by Ruth Wilson. And this producer, John Wolfe, has appointed a Hollywood director called Leo Kopernick, Adrian Brody plays him, to oversee the production. And he's engaged Mervyn Kokonoris, David Oyelowo, to write the screenplay. Okay? Brody plays Leo Kopernick. He's the director, and David Ayalowo plays Mervyn Cockett-Norris, who's to write the screenplay. But to say the two of them, Kopernick and Cockett-Norris, had creative differences, uh, I reckon you'd be saying that's an understatement, would you not? Kopernick finds the concept behind the mousetrap, which I should quickly add he has not seen, boring. He wants to shake things up. He's not enamoured with Cocker Norris's treatment of the play in film version, and he tells him so. At a party to celebrate the play's 100th staging, Kopernick drinks too much, which he's prone to doing, and he gets into a fight with the leading man from the play, Richard Attenborough, played by Harris Dickinson. Soon after that, Kopernick ends up dead. And everyone there, everyone present becomes a suspect, all the cast. More than that, though, they may well be under threat as the next possible victim of the killer. Called in to oversee the murder investigation is Inspector Stockard, played by Sam Rockwell, who, like Kopernick, has a penchant for the bottle. Working alongside him is an eager young constable by the name of Constable Stalker, played by Shisha Ronan who is keen to learn from Inspector Stockard. But she's got a habit of jumping to conclusions. The threads in See How They Run, many and varied, and in unpicking them, I, I did laugh a lot. And that's primarily because of the lines gifted to Shisha Ronan by the writer Mark Chappell, who's best known for his television work, and also her delivery of those lines. Time and again, in the past, she's shown what a magnificent actor she is in dramatic roles. Uh, I was thinking of Brooklyn, for example. But here she proves how adept she is with lighter weight material. She's done sort of comedic, dramatic things before, but this is very much comedic. And I thought Sam Rockwell was terrific too as the aloof lead investigator. The contrast between the pair of them, sharp and effective. And assembled around them, of course, a colourful collective of characters. Many are entitled and arrogant they're hot-headed or deceptive. So that is See How They Run. What did you think of it, Greg? I actually liked it. I thought it was a crowd-pleasing comedy, whodunit, that plays this formula of the murder mystery, you know, the drawing room um, drama 
and the very conventions of the genre established by Agatha Christie in her novels, they play it for last here. And this follows in the footsteps of other comedies like Neil Simon's 1976 parody Murder by Death, which also played the traditional whodunit tropes for last there. Um, I thought it was a good um, script from um, first-time feature writer Mark Chappell. Uh, it has a lot of fun with the material. The self-aware script is full of meta-in-jokes, witty puns, clever cinematic references, a lot of which will probably go over the heads of younger audiences, knowing allusions to the literary figures and the world of live theatre. Um, for example, the character of Stoppard is a clear reference to um, Tony Award-winning playwright Tom Stoppard, who wrote uh, a play called The Real Inspector Hound in 1968, a one-act murder mystery, which was a parody of The Mousetrap itself there. Um, and there's a mix of real-life people here, like Richard Attenborough, um, with a lot of fictitious characters. So that narrows down the pool of suspects, I think, to who um, is the guilty party here. But there's a lot of fun there. Um, most of the gags do land. Um, and there's a lot of cinematic references here too. For example, Justice Cock and Norris criticises the use of flashbacks as a slow and lazy cinematic device. The film itself jumps into a, straight into a flashback sequence. Yeah. Um, and the director, Tom George, this is his first feature film as well, uses the split screen effect for good effects here as well. I thought the production design captured the era of 1950s London superbly with the production design, um, the cars, the costumes, and all that kind of stuff. And they even restaged a couple of scenes from the mousetrap um, and get the look and feel of it right too. And I thought the characters were quite well done. I thought there was a great odd couple dynamic between Sam Rockwell and Sherez Ronan, which works really well there. Um, some of the other characters don't get as much screen time there um, as well. But I, I had a lot of fun with this. I thought it was quite well done. Well done. And there's even a nice cameo from Agatha Christie towards the end, played by Shirley Henderson. Yeah, well, it takes a bit of concentration to follow all that's going on. You could mount a reasonable argument to say that some of what transpires is extremely far-fetched, Peter. But pointedly, that matters little because the result is really a fun-filled farce delightfully positioned in a bygone era, is it not? It is. It's a very amusing sort of satire. And uh, uh, Saoirse Ronan, that's how she pronounces her, her name, Saoirse, is... Saoirse, is it? Saoirse. Saoirse, yes, she's Irish. And, uh, yeah, I always said Saoirse. It's definitely Saoirse, is it? Okay. Saoirse, you yeah. knew Saoirse yeah. like I knew Saoirse. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Susie. All right. Now, uh, the uh, yes, this is a very amusing film, as uh, Greg has mentioned, the use of split screen, the use of in-jokes, um, and Saoirse Ronan herself does a, a wonderful little scene where she mimics Catherine Hepburn and does it so well. Um, look, it's 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 clever in its plotting. It, the irony of the film uh, is that there can be no film version of The Mousetrap mm. yes. until... The stage production closes so <laughs> so I, I found that one of the in jokes and one of the uh, amusing bits in the film look uh, i really enjoyed it adrian brody has a lot of fun with his sort of character uh and uh, and certainly uh, sam uh, does a good job as the uh, uh, the detective who uh, uh is perhaps fairly savvy but uh uh, is perhaps a bit confused at times and needs Saoirse Ronan to help her, uh, to help him, I should say, to uh, to get to uh, to the to the end point. Look, the, uh, it's a very cleverly made film. Uh, the in jokes uh, itself, uh, references to dentists and and 
if you look at the names, they are all part of Agatha Christie stories. I mean, there is so much to admire in the way the script is put together and the direction is uh, is very good. So, yes, I, I very much enjoyed the film and it certainly uh, picks up on the period of the 1950s uh, very cleverly. Beautifully, yeah. And you're right, Greg, that the sort of first-time film director, feature film director, Tom George, you know, when you combine him with the really Mark Chappell, uh, they've done a great job. I'll be very interested to see how they follow up that, because often you can get a, a hit and then, you know, the, the next choice is is the one that often decides whether they're, they're, they're worth pursuing. I'm, I'm not saying they're not worth pursuing, but in terms of the, the career in major motion pictures so let's see how see how they run follows up but for see how they run i'm going to give it a seven out of ten it's rated a seven and a half sorry it's rated m and it runs for 98 minutes what do you think peter Yes, I, I really enjoyed it. And by the way, the title, See How They Run, is the second line of the uh, Three Blind Mice um, sort of song, poem, whatever. Uh, yes, I really enjoyed it. And uh, I also gave it seven out of ten. Excellent. So seven and a half for me, seven for you and Greg King. Yep, seven for me. Well, and that um, Three Blind Mice was actually the original title of The Mousetrap before it was changed there. And that um, thing about the film not being able to main talk being able to be made it's called six months after the theatrical run Agatha Christie had that written into a contract actually for the play so yep. and the play been running for nearly 60 years now so 70 years so um we've got to wait a while for a film version oh absolutely <laughs> I mean that, that that still stays mind you it did close because of COVID yeah that, 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 that was otherwise been running non-stop there Correct. No, was it our, our very own Charles Kingwell played in in one one of the versions in London as well uh, was it 1952 it started? Yep, 19, yes. October 1952. 52, yeah, there we go. You are listening to Gregory King, Peter Krauss and Alex First. The Humans, mm, M-rated 107 minutes, follows the ups and downs of a normal, loving, dysfunctional family. It's based on uh, the person's own Tony Award-winning play of the same name, written and directed by Stephen Caram. And we're talking about Thanksgiving. Eric and Deirdre Blake, played by Richard Jenkins and Jane Howdy Shell, and his wheelchair-bound mother, June Squibb, is the actress who plays her, arrive at their daughter, Bridget Beanie Feldstein's, Feldstein's run-down New York apartment. So you've got the mother and father, and you've got the grandmother uh, being hosted by Bridget. And also there is Bridget's older sister, Amy, played by Amy Schumer. And Bridget has a live-in boyfriend called Richard, played by Stephen Ewan. So Bridget and Richard have just moved into this really dilapidated apartment. And uh, let's just say that uh, Bridget's dad, Eric, isn't exactly sold on the place. Noises, creaks, bangs abound. The, the lights on the fritz. As the evening unfolds, we learn more about each of those that are in the apartment, so each of the extended family members. As that happens, they, they also say that they're thankful to be together. Well, that is Thanksgiving, and they actually have a game around, uh, which I thought was a bit of fun, uh, a pig that they they proceed to dismember. It's a, it's a candy pig that's made of peppermint. And, you know, each time they they tap the peppermint, they they say why they're thankful to be together. 
along with all of that, though, a number of pot shots are fired and, and all is far from bonhomie. Issues about employment, health and well-being, interpersonal relationships and money surfaced during the course of that one evening. Biggest revelation, though, is saved until near the end of the film. I did not see that coming. It's characterised, this is the humans, by very natural performances. There's credibility in what we're seeing. And as with the very best films, and I should add plays, it does not appear that the actors are acting. I, I really could single out each one of them in what is really an ensemble piece. The soundscape, well, that's that's like another character constantly finding its way into what unravels. Conversations here just happen or, or don't, as they would at any family gathering. I, one thing I appreciated was the vulnerabilities, the, the pushback, the sensitivities, as well as the feistiness. And really, the humans deals with the everyday, with the vicissitudes of life, the good, the bad, the indifferent. Nothing happens at speed. And the last 20 minutes, I found particularly telling Peter Krause. Absolutely right. The, uh, the film builds up. Uh, based on the stage play, as you mentioned, uh, builds up a tension uh, eventually uh, and the revelation um, that uh, makes it quite a powerful film by the end of it. it. It's interesting the way the sound design, as you mentioned, and the the way the characters gradually evolve during their Thanksgiving discussion. Uh, it's interesting how there is so much tension that is developed and the noises and uh, the uh, other things that happen around them um, from upstairs perhaps or from other uh, apartments etc makes it rather symbolic of a sort of a crumbling middle class society that sort of thing which mm. I think Stephen Karam was uh, was on about um, it uh, Jane uh, Howdyshell, uh, who's also in Only Murders in the Building, a, a wonderful series on, on Disney+, Plus, um, won a Tony Award for her performance in the stage production. She's the only and one, Peter. She's the only one. All of them. She's the only one from the stage production, I think, who's, who's in this, though. Yes. Yeah, that's correct. Yes, that's that's absolutely correct. And uh, yes, she uh, translates her performance so beautifully into into the film version. And it's nice to see Bini Feldstein, who mm. uh, has become more of a uh, a cinema actor now that uh, she's done a fair bit of uh, stage acting as well. She played uh, in Funny Girl, I think, a version of Funny Girl on stage in America. Anyway, uh, Amy Schumer is also given some uh, some good lines uh, in this uh, film version i really liked the film because of its tension because you didn't quite know where it was going uh, it could have well translated into a horror film into some sort of uh, attack or violence there there are so many possibilities that the film sets up and uh, the way it does set up its drama i think is very clever so uh, i really enjoyed it mm, well Look, what I took from all of this is that we humans are flawed, Greg. Uh, bad things happen to good people. Uh, happiness, sadness, anger, disappointment, shame, terror, they intersect. I mean, things just happen when you don't expect them to happen and uh, dealing with one another can be um, a, a, a difficult thing, can it not? Yep. And this um, is 
um, rework some of those familiar tropes of the subgenre of that dysfunctional family gathering that seems to be a favourite theme of playwriters um, for the theatre, such as Tracy Letts' August Osage County, which I enjoyed more than this one because um, it was a lot brighter. This is a fairly bleak-looking film. I think the shadows, the lighting are all fairly bleak there, helped thanks by the cinematography of Lowell Crowley there, who often shoots from off-kilter angles as well, frames the characters through doorways and that, which adds to that air that something is a little bit off here as well. And as you said, um, the apartment with its creeps and unsettling sounds, the unsettling rumbling from the pipes, the strange noises, the banging from other other neighbours upstairs, water damage on the ceilings and the walls, and the light bulbs burning out as well, throw the rooms into darkness and... Um, it sort of adds to that air that something's a little bit amiss here as well. Um, Eric, the character played by um, Richard Jenkins, also says that this place is located close to where September 11 happened there. And he's fearful of the city. He's distrustful of the city there and, fe and fearful of the city there. And that adds another element of tension to it too. I thought the production design from this was um, quite good and recreated the drab setting from the stage play and it makes the confined apartment almost another character in the film. And as you've already mentioned the sound design, which is impressive and creates an ominous mood as well. And some of the performances are quite good there. I don't think June Squibb was given much to do as the wheelchair-bound grandmother there. Um, but Amy Schumer essentially plays it straight here um, in a straight role for a change there. Um, and I thought, as um, Peter pointed out, Jane Hudichel is very good here, delivers a moving performance as she struggles to hide her sense of disappointment and resentment there. I thought Richard Jenkins was nicely nuanced as Eric, who has trouble com communicating his emotions there, and they convey their disappointment at this rundown apartment. Um, and Stephen Ewan from The Walking Dead was quite good as Richard there as well. Um, but I found this a little bit um, too theatre-bound for a, a, a film experience there. Um, I found it a bit bleak. It's perceptive, offers insight into the human condition, human behaviour, everyday fears and our failings, but I didn't think it was a particularly enjoyable experience at the cinema. Mm, I mean, I, I agree that it was bleak, but, you know, this, uh, bleak films can still be worth seeing, and I mm. I think you've got to stick with it because it's a slow burn. Uh, there's mm. no question that it, it picks up towards the end uh, but it's got its own cadence, and I, I don't have a problem with that. I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10. Peter? Yes, I, I thought it was actually quite cinematic, even though it was based on a stage play, so I thought it was well filmed. Uh, I also give it 7 out of 10. Mm, and, Greg King, you'll, you'll go lower, I'm presuming, based yeah, on five and a half to 6. Sorry, say that again? 5.5 to 6. 5.5 to 6, okay. That's The Humans, 107 minutes, rated M on Jair, 24 hours a day programming. If you want to listen to some great music, if you want to listen to some talk like we are doing now, please tune in at any time and hopefully we are there to entertain you. That's what it's all about. First on film and entertainment. Now, let's count to three, shall we? Why am I saying that? Because, and, and I think we've got to be a bit careful with this particular movie. It's called On the Count of Three. It's MA-rated and it runs for 86 minutes. Just be aware that this review contains details of a rather confronting theme, and I, I just want you to be aware of that. Uh, if you need to seek support, there are lots of various sort of uh, help groups around uh, that you can you can turn to, and you'll you'll 
you'll be aware in the next few moments in terms of what I'm um, speaking of. So Lifeline being one that comes to mind. It's a dramatic comedy. Uh, it's on the count of three. A couple of uninspired 30-something best mates decide to end things for good. Kevin is played by Christopher Abbott, and he's been in and out of therapy since the age of eight when he was in foster care. There he was abused by his psychiatrist. Now, three days ago, he tried once again to top himself by taking an overdose. So not surprisingly, he's been institutionalised. And now he's trying to trick his therapist into believing that all is okay, three days later. His best mate from school days, Val, played by Jared Carmichael, who also makes his directorial debut with On the Count of Three, so he's the star and the director, is in a dead-end job. He can't stand it. He, he, he decides that's it and he resigns. He was treated shamefully by his estranged father. I'm talking about Val. He's cut off ties. He's cut off contact with his girlfriend, Natasha, played by Tiffany Haddish. Val also decides life is no longer worth living. So what does he do? He busts Kevin out of care, his best mate, comes up with a plan for the pair of them to blow each other's brains out behind a strip joint in broad daylight. Right. Mm. As you do. Well, what a what a bizarre plan. But anyway, they're at at wit's end. And, and, you know, that's that's why they've decided, well, at least one of the Vals decided for the two of them that that's how they're going to end it. Only at the last moment, Kevin decides he wants the rest of the day before, well, they do the deed. And without any fixed idea of what to do next, the pair drives around in Val's car cleaning up loose ends. First up, they eat a meal together. And it's there that Kevin's confronted by a bloke with whom he used to go to school, who picked on him at school. Val pays a visit to his estranged father and meets up with his angry girlfriend. Kevin confronts his childhood psychiatrist. Kevin and Val together go dirt bike racing after visiting their former employer. So, well, a lot goes down in what is a wild ride, a commentary on the burden of mortality in which gallows humour abounds. So despite the suicide theme, they've taken you know this as black humour. It's the work of Ari Karcher and Ryan Welsh. The two of them, they worked together on the ongoing TV series Rammy and Catcher collaborated with Jerry Carmichael on the Carmichael show, which ran from 2015 to 2017. What struck me immediately was the deadpan delivery of both Carmichael and Abbott. I mean, the subject of, of ending one's life, hardly to be taken lightly, and yet the discussions about it in this movie are matter of fact. One line early on really struck a chord. It goes like this. I think about it. That is ending my life all the time. And it brings me comfort, relief. That's the end of the quote. Now, although there's an attitude shift, at least in one case, as events play out, Kevin and Val are two guys trying to navigate the world and yet not finding positive answers. I did like the fact that there are few, if any, signals as to what was going to happen next. Things just happen. Kevin and Val do what they do and say what they say instinctively. And the two of them, Carmichael and Abbott, make a droll and compelling duo. It appears everything that Kevin and Val touch or have anything to do with turns sour. They're they're sad, they're vulnerable, they're apathetic. 
quite a contrast to Hattie, who brings a no-nonsense attitude to her, her portrayal of Val's girlfriend, Natasha. And the reason that it's called On the Count of Three, well, basically, that's what they determined that they're going to do uh, for the gun to have maximum impact. It's sort of, this is a darker variant of a buddy comedy, isn't it, Craig? It is. It is. Sorry, uh, yeah, it's a black comic buddy film there. Um, but I thought as the film went on, we came to care about the two characters as they bumble their way through their last day on Earth there. And um, especially the character of Val, who finds a reason actually to want to keep living after all the stuff they've gone through there. Um, the film deals with a lot of weighty themes there, as you mentioned before, Alex, mental illness, abuse, toxic masculinity, friendship, depression, suicide, bullying. But the material is laced with a strong streak of black humour there, which actually works. I thought um, Carmichael did a good job here um, um, with a bit of a more reflective, calm performance there, while Abbott is loud, brash and over the top as the manic Kevin, but his performance suited the character um, there as well. And I thought, as you said, Tiffany Haddish made an impression in her small role as Val's girlfriend, and Henry Winkler made the most of his two short um, appearances as a former psychiatrist who um, is largely responsible for Kevin's um, psychotic state there. Um, it's unpredictable. You're not sure where it's going to go as this wild ride plays out. But as I said, you, you come to care about these two characters and hope they make it. Mm, well, you do. I mean, look, the, the target audience for this, I reckon it's Generation Now, right? I mean, there's something strangely compelling about it, though, I, I found, Peter. Definitely compelling. And this uh, is a good example of a low-budget film with a very cleverly written script. And uh, and the way it's structured also um, leads to caring about these characters as the storyline develops. The opening scene is uh, a very interesting confrontation where the, the two of them point guns at each other, uh, and that's where On the Count of Three comes in. Uh, and then we flash back to um, how they got to be where they are. Uh, yes, it's nice to see Henry Winkler in, a, in a, a small but telling role and Tiffany Haddish, who uh, has a good paired back performance uh, in this film as well. But this is a, a, a film that is a triumph of writing and of clever plotting um, where the characters are well-developed and uh, well served by a script that deals with a very grim sort of issue. The whole notion of suicide is a, a difficult one for films to handle. Uh, and this one does it reasonably effectively, um, especially insofar as we start to care about these two characters as the storyline develops. So, yes, I, I actually really enjoyed this film. I uh, Well, enjoyed, appreciated this film yeah, is probably a better I, I way think, of putting it. Yeah, I think that's a, it's a better way of putting it. I, again, it's um, it's a good first-up effort. So, you know, let's see what, what happens next for and, – and the two of them work together well. I mean, you know, as actors, I think they bounce off each other effectively. So what are you going to give it, Peter, out of ten? Look, surprisingly, I've been re really consistent today with my uh, marks. Yes. I, I, again, seven out of ten. Yeah, I'm giving – I'm also giving it a seven out of ten. Greg King, what uh, what do you think? Seven out of ten as well for me too. I, I enjoyed it, uh, despite the darker tone of humour there. And uh, the relationship between you guys seemed natural and unforced and the performances backed them up. Yeah, well, I mean, that's it's it's kind of a surprising film because it, it sneaks up on you and, you, you know, I think 
think uh, I, I don't mind that. I, th- I think that's uh, a, a quite a good thing. So, yeah, okay. So most of the movies this, this week, apart from the one, Greg, that you you didn't particularly like, most of the movies have got a, a consistent score, which is uh, which is interesting. So, okay, that's on the count of three, which is MA rated for very good reason, of course, and uh, it runs for 86 minutes. Let me let me talk. I mentioned that I was going to reference a couple of uh, plays and productions, etc. So I think now's not a bad time to do that. Let's start with Cyrano. Now, both of you would have seen film versions, I dare say, of Cyrano de Bergerac. Yes? Greg? Many. Many. Okay. So, I, I mean, the story is familiar to both of you, so you can sort of jump in here whenever you wish. This is the MTC production at South Bank Theatre, the Sumner. Massive triumph. As I said at the outset of this program, MTC production of the year for me, talented cast, headlined by the writer and the star, Virginia Gay. Uh, are you familiar with her, Greg? Uh, not really. Oh, okay. I think if you rec- you'd recognise her if you saw a photograph, I dare say. But okay. the, she, she proves that the pen is mightier than the sword. So this is a contemporary rewrite. Do you remember who wrote the classic play, any of you, either of you? Um, Emil Rostand or something, wasn't it? Yeah, Ed, well done, Edmund Rostand. Uh, th- of course, it's about a French army soldier who's a gifted poet with a particularly large nose, enamoured by his cousin. And she she's named Roxanne, beautiful, talented intellectual. But Cyrano's encumbered by his uh, nose in his quest to woo her. Uh, what's, what's the technical term for nose? Uh, proboscis, I think, isn't it? Yep. That, that comes to mind. Anyway, uh, he fears rejection because of his ugliness and instead he ends up aiding the pursuits of a simple-minded but handsome cadet named Christian. I've said, you know, he's a soldier and, and so is Christian as a cadet. Uh, and, and what you've got is that the, the key character, uh, Cyrano, is unable and unwilling to tell Roxanne the truth about how he feels. In the MTC outing, the piece is turned on its head. So, of course, you've got a wordsmith of the highest order. The modern Cyrano is not a man. It's a woman who who doesn't suffer fools gladly and cuts down anyone who dares challenge her by outwitting them. And in this case, pushing her buttons are members of the ensemble. And they include a show pony with tickets on himself, played by Robin Goldsworthy, who champions the several characters that he claims to play. Another is much more measured, played by Milo Hartill, voice of reason who can mount a reasoned argument. And then there's the no-name timid woman, Holly Austin plays her, readily pushed aside, who cowers in fear of Cyrano's vitriol. Notably in this Virginia Gay's adaptation of the story, Cyrano is gay and the climax has been upended. The play is a brilliant, hilarious farce. It's bold, it's energetic, it's rib-tickling. There are laughs aplenty, a couple of compelling musical numbers. Hartill is a particularly noteworthy singer as well as an actor, and there's even a short dance interlude. Can you imagine all of that, guys, for Cyrano de Bergerac? I'll tell you something, it's something special. Uh, So much has been thrown at Cyrano, and it works a treat. It is so clever. The writing is sharp, it's cutting, the performances are superb. Virginia Gay acts up a storm. Her immaculate delivery, impeccable comic timing, 
They, they provide a masterclass of showmanship. Uh, dare I say she's poetry in motion, Peter. Thank you very much. Uh, mind you, she's far from alone in impressing. Supporting cast don't miss a beat either. Tuli Narkel brings enviable light and shade to Roxanne. Hartill showcases her all-round vocal skills as well as acting chops. Goldsworthy, the hyperbole is a winner, while facial expressions and body movement are two of the keys to Austen's successful characterization of this timid woman. So, I mean, it, it's a pretty bold and brassy outing, uh, and I, I should add that Claude Jabour skillfully straddles the requirements of, of a fated Adonis with a decidedly stunted vocabulary. He plays the muscle-bound yarn, yarn drawn from the name Christian, right? So that's Claude Jabour. Uh, the set designer is Elizabeth Gadsby, made a great deal of the backstage setting brought to the front of house because, I mean, it's set in a, in a theatre. Marvellous direction from Sarah Goods and musical direction from Zani Kolak. See Cyrano emerge really as one of MTC's finest works. It's well worth rushing to see. It really is. It's a beauty. Um, the talent is just top shelf. It's playing at Southbank Theatre the Sumner. Greg, I think you'd really enjoy this. It, it's on until the 29th of October. Are you seeing it or not? Or well, I, I don't know what you're doing with MTC this year. No, I haven't Haven't been that MCC since the, since the COVID lockdowns and um, don't know what I'll do next year, depending on whether our leader can organise um, our group bookings again. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, this is just really worth seeing. I, I loved it. thought it was absolutely terrific. So you've got till the 29th of October to see it. I, I Like everybody, a standing ovation to a person uh, in the front rows, I, I didn't look back. It was just well-deserved runs for oh, between 100 and 110 minutes, really something something out of the ordinary. And, you know, you, you go along, you don't know what to expect, and it just blew, blows you away, really absolutely stunning. Talking about being blown away, uh, do you? I, I suppose let me start by asking, do you both like horror or do you not like horror as a genre? Peter? I do. When it's well done and it's not derivative, yes, I really like horror. Mm -hmm. and, and Greg, are you a horror fan or not? Yes, I, I like horror films, um, particularly some of that stuff from the seventies, The Omen, The Exorcist. All those films are some, some, some among my favourite films. You're you're quite a reader. You've got a voracious yeah. appetite. Do you? I, I know you do a lot of adventure and and you do crime. But do you have you read any horror or not? Yeah, I've read a lot of Stephen King books. Um, a guy called Graham Macedon, Graham Barker, and a few others there. Yeah, I do oh, read. Okay. Occasional horror film books. All right. Well, look, I went along to Ghost Stories at the Athenaeum Theatre, and you've got an engaging professor of parapsychology, and he talks us through the history of ghost stories and how they came to be and, and how they've evolved over time. He, the professor's name is Philip Goodman, played by Steve Rogers, and his dissertation comes complete with photographic and video evidence, and I use that last word in inverted commas. Among the most compelling is a photograph of four people taken in Scotland in 1972. And upon closer inspection, that photograph reveals more than it first meets the eye. The scientist, and this actually happens, asks us, the audience, how many believe in ghosts and how many have experienced the paranormal. Now, you've, bear in mind, okay, both of you, I know, Peter, you don't do a lot of theatre, but Greg, you do some. 
when you ask an audience who attends ghost stories how many believe in ghosts, what proportion of the audience would you imagine, Greg, puts up their hands? Just give me a, a wild guess. Yeah, 25%. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Peter? Oh, maybe half. Yeah. Half the audience believe in ghosts. I was surprised at such a large number. But it, there you go. And then, of course, when they're asked how many have experienced the paranormal, the numbers dwindle. But still a, a substantial number of those that were in the audience on Friday night put up their hands. So, yeah, anyway, I, I found both of those figures rather surprising. So I, I really, I, I suppose I, I, I found myself in a room of believers. So what Philip Goodman, the professor, reveals is that in 20 years of listening to stories about the unexplained, three stand out. And he proceeds to introduce the first before the night watchman that this is about, Tony Matthews, played by Jay Lagaya. That, that story plays out in front of our eyes. And this is a man who left home at the age of 13 and worked several jobs. He was married for 15 years. His wife passed away 23 years ago. And tragically, his daughter was hospitalised, effectively in a coma, five years earlier, right? Five years, sort of um, five years ago. So his ghostly experience happened on his last night on the job as a night watchman, seven years after he started in that particular job, and it happened at 3.45 in the morning. Next up, Professor Goodman turns to the tortured tale of a young unlicensed driver alone in his parents' vehicle in the dead of night after attending a party an hour's drive from home. And finally, a successful but arrogant and annoying investment specialist relays his chilling experience with a malevolent force in a child's nursery. But wait, there's more. There's more by way of a surprise, well, a shock ending to ghost stories where everything we've heard and seen is upended. It really is clever, it's creative, it's a compelling piece of theatricality that caps off an engaging 80 minutes of storytelling and scares. I thought the actors did a really good job. And I single out Rogers as the narrator and Matthews as the night watchman for special mention. Both are, are particularly natural and personable. Much about the sets, the props, the lighting and the sound, the sets, the props, the lighting and the sound impresses. It amounts to an ever-changing tapestry of mood and movement, goes to show that a production such as this relies heavily on backstage artistry. So technically, it's quite a feat to put together and pull off. Now, while I can't point to blood-curdling screams, there were certainly shrieks from among the more sensitive that had assembled at the Athenaeum Theatre on Friday night. Ghost Stories has fun playing with our minds, crafting a flavour of apprehension and fear. So it's a, I think it's well worth seeing. I, I, I didn't know what to expect going in. I thought, gee, it's really cleverly put together. And I mean, this is a very technical play because everything has to hang together for it to work the way it works. And, you know, ghosts, it's, it's, I mean, people are cynical. So if you've got a cynical audience, even though in this case you've got a large number of believers, you still have to fool us. And I think they fooled us particularly well. So please go along and see Ghost Stories, which is playing as we speak at the Athenaeum Theatre. And you've got 
plenty of opportunity to see it. Uh, I think you've got tickets in, uh, well, uh, you've got, it's playing until the 5th of November before going to Adelaide. So does that impress you, Greg? Do you, does that interest you? Uh, maybe not. I've, I've spent most of my um, theatre money on getting tickets for Hamilton. Have you have you not yet seen it yet? No, it's not until November the fifth. It's my a birthday present for me. Ah, oh, there you go. All right, and and Peter, do you? I mean, can you be convinced ever to go to the theatre? I mean, what, why don't you go more often? Uh, look, I, I suppose I concentrate a lot on film, uh, and because there is so much available on film, on streaming, etc., uh, and my my own shows and all that sort of thing, uh, I tend not to go to theatre because I really don't have time. Yeah, I mean that's you know me. It's also yeah, problematic. I like we've got um, the the Fringe Festival that's that's on, and I mean it's wonderful. It's wonderful to be invited everywhere, and you're constantly juggling, aren't you? That's the nature of the beast. There, there is so much to see and do, and all you can do is try and you try and convince program people on a program like this to you know what to, what they should be seeing and doing, and hopefully, I mean it, it also is. Greg, you know Hamilton tickets are not cheap, are they? No, um, they range from about seventy nine to about four hundred. Is it really? It's as dear. It can be as dear as four hundred, can it? My tickets cost two hundred. Wow! Did you get you yeah, got mid, a mid range? You got a reserve, or where did you see? Uh, seats are in sort of um, not in the stalls, sort of halfway back in the theatre. Okay. All right. Well, be very interested to. I hope you like Hamilton as much as I, I've loved it. I mean, I've I've had the good fortune to see it a couple of times. Once in Melbourne, once in Sydney, and it really is something mighty special. And even if you don't like hip hop, um, I you know I I can't say I'm an aficionado. I loved what they did with it. So we'll, um, com yeah. we'll compare notes after I've seen it, Alex. No, that sounds good. Now there, there's a movie that starts next week, which I normally we we don't talk about movies that uh, are a week out but I, I wouldn't mind doing it because it, it reminded me of um, the Nicole Kidman movie uh, what what was that called Greg? Stepford Wives which was yeah. made in some years with Catherine Ross as well yeah yes. I, I the Stepford I wouldn't have called Stepford Wives a, a brilliant movie would, would either of you? No no I I, I mean I, I think that yeah, it, it it was okay, but but that's it. I'm talking about a movie called Don't Worry, Darling. So let let's have a go at that one. It's um two hours and three minutes. It's M rated, and yeah, to me, it's got much in common with the Stepford Wives, which came out in 2004. Seemingly picture perfect society is anything but. Women are trapped in a sham environment, and it's set in the 1950s. Alice, played by Florence Pugh, and Jack, Harry Styles, happily married. The spark between them is strong. They don't have any children. They, they live in an experimental community in the desert with other couples. And the men go off to work. The women happily tend to the housekeeping and the cooking, and they socialise with each other. Their job is to keep their husbands and children happy. And I appreciate if you're listening to this, you may be gasping for air at this point. But there we go. That I'm just telling you what goes on in the movie. Well, that's very 50s, Alex. It did very 50s, yeah, very 50s. You old and um, rolled were very well spelled out, spelled out in the 50s. I mean, all you have to do is look at something like Rear Window, which sort of explored that aspect of 1950s society as well. Exactly, but there are people listening who might be saying, well, you know, life's moved on, why are we dealing with this, etc." Well, yeah, that was a reality at that point. 
Anyway, these women are strictly prohibited from wandering off the beaten track because they're told it is not safe. They are not free to know or to talk about what their husbands are actually doing in life, what their work is. And they have to accept that Frank, played by Chris Pine, the man who's founded what is named the Victory Project, this experimental community, is building something special. When one of the wives, Margaret, played by Kiki Lane, who is a friend of Alice's, that's the Florence Pugh character, goes rogue, indicating all is not right, Alice does pay attention, but really not enough. Still, increasingly, Alice is having disturbing visions. Everything escalates when Alice witnesses a plane crash and upon investigating, finds herself on forbidden soil. This dream is about to turn into a nightmare. The movie Don't Worry Darling reunites the director, Olivia Wilde, who also features as Alice's friend and next-door neighbour, Bunny, with the screenwriter, Katie Silberman. They work together on a very clever comedy called Booksmart. Don't Worry Darling, well, it's an intriguing, good-looking mystery thriller. It's stylish, with impressive production design from Katie Byron. So too, hair, makeup and costuming. They get that right. Synthetic perfection, I thought, very well captured by the cinematographer, who in this case is Matthew Libertique. Uh, sparkling new cars of the era. Boy, are they eye-watering. Delightful to look at. Pew, who does most of the heavy lifting, I found most impressive as the film centrepiece. She manifests her character's increasing unease with distinction, seamlessly changing her mood. Harry Styles oozes dutiful charm. Chris Pine is suitably creepy as the manipulator. Takes a while, though, don't worry, darling, to establish itself. The script could readily have been pared back from its running time, which I mentioned was at two hours and three minutes. More context, both in terms of motive and background information, would not have hurt either, and I would have liked more from the film's climax. I was drawn in, but I wasn't totally satisfied by Don't Worry Darling. What about you, Peter? Uh, I actually, after seeing this film, retitled it I Would Worry, Darling, uh, because I think this is a film in search of a coherent script. It, it is very unclear about whether it is meant to be a satire of the 50s and that sort of Stepford Wives, Truman Show sort of uh, aspect of the film, or whether it's meant to be about mental manipulation or a cult figure that uh, turns people's minds, in particular women's minds, into, into mush to some extent, or whether it's about uh, mental illness and shock therapy and what happens when you deal with that uh, contemporary sort of situation. It, it, the film is a bit of a mess for me, unfortunately. Um, I was struggling to understand what point it was trying to make, and I don't think it ever reached a coherent point. So I was very disappointed by this film. Mm. What about you, Greg? Don't worry, darling. Uh, do worry. I, I sort of raised a lot of questions that didn't properly answer there, and I was left scratching my head by the end of the film, wondering what the hell it was all about. But Visually, it's quite impressive there. I thought the production design was fantastic mm -hmm. there. That captures perfectly that, that the people in the community talk about symmetry and order and all that kind of stuff. And I thought it caught, caught that brilliantly with all the nice house, houses lined up around the cul-de-sac there as the men head off to work in their bright-coloured cars. They sort of do it in a precision. It's very orderly there. 
And as the thing starts to unravel, you sort of wonder what's going on beneath the surface of here. Um, I thought um, the performances were quite good. Um, I thought Florence Pugh, as you said, captured her uneasiness there. She brought strength and determination to her role there, um, caught that sort of uncertainty there. I thought Pine has a suave and sophisticated surface, but underneath it does sort of have this more sinister undercurrent going on there as well. The film looked good, um, but as Peter and you have said, it sort of raises more questions than answers and it's not completely satisfactory as a whole. Yeah, uh, you want more from it. And really, Greg, do you agree two hours, three minutes? It did not need that running time, surely. No, it did stretch stretch the friendship a little bit, yes. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot around the film and the relationship, of course, Olivia Wilde and and Harry Styles and falling out with with the lead actress in Pew. Uh, I mean, none of that, of course, is captured in the film. We're, we're purely judging it based on what we've seen. But, yeah, I, I suppose it would have been nice for it to have uh, captured a little bit more and, and, and provided a bit more direction. Having said that, I'm giving it a six and a half out of ten. What are you giving it, Peter? Well, it's interesting it was shot in Palm Springs where there is so much of that uh, housing uh, still available today. Uh, look, Olivia Wilde uh, does uh, have a brave attempt at directing uh, an, an incoherent script. So I, uh, and, and the film is glossy, but I can only give it five out of ten. Wow, a bare pass. Greg, are you any more generous or not? I'm going to go middle ground. I'm going to give it six out of ten. Six out of ten, Okay. Well, that's the lowest score of a film this week, and it opens on Thursday of this week. So we've given you a bit of a sneak peek. Perhaps you go along and you might formulate a different view. It has been a pleasure having you both on board uh, this week. We'll, we'll do it all again next week, first on film and entertainment. Greg King, enjoy your week. I'll try. Back to work next week. Ah, uh, Yes, of course, as a school teacher. And I, I presume the same applies to you, Peter Krause. Yes, I, absolutely. I'm back at school next week, but I should mention Italian Film Festival is still on. Ah, yes, the Italian Film Festival. Please go along. Palace Cinemas, uh, every, every, every good Palace Cinema has got an Italian film on as we speak. Catch you next week on First on Film and Entertainment. <laughs>